Predictions are dangerous. We absolutely need more inventory. The Fed doesn't actually have a lot of tools to regulate inflation. That cash has dried up. Wow, is my first thought, Bruce. If both parties don't win, it doesn't happen. The Real Look. Trending News. Today's Wednesday, February 15th. I'm Bruce Hardy. And I'm Chase Williams. And this is the news you need to know. Well, the housing market experienced more volatility last week, with housing inventory dropping as mortgage rates moved higher. In fact, purchase application data had a 3% week-to-week increase, which is interesting, right? The start of 23 has actually been good considering mortgage rates have stayed above 6% most of the time. Weekly housing inventory, however, continues to decline, as we saw a decrease of 13,238 units last week. And that's double the amount we had this time last year. Now, the 10-year yield jumped aggressively, continuing the decisive move from the jobs data on Friday, and mortgage rates have moved from the recent lows of 5.99% back up to 6.5%. So, Chase, what are your thoughts around this? I think it illustrates, Bruce, the point we've made a few times, which is that you know a week-to-week change doesn't have necessarily the impact you might imagine on the consumer reaction. So here's the example, right? Rates actually went up, but more people applied for a mortgage. And again, we know that's true because although people are sensitive to rates to some degree, they're not as sensitive as they are to the needs that they have in their life that require or have them wanting to make a purchase, right? If your wife is pregnant with another baby and you don't have enough rooms for said baby in nine months, you're much more sensitive to that as a reason for purchasing than you are a quarter point rate change from week to week, right? So that's all right. We want to continue to watch those numbers very closely. And yet we're looking for trends that are typically going to be displayed out over more than a week's period of time. And you're going to have people that like to make predictions, right? Oh, they went down. Look at that. The Fed's going to slow down and things are going to be great. And then boom, jobs report comes out. Fed might not be slowing down. Rates back up. And so it can create a little bit of whiplash, if you will, depending on how closely you're paying attention. But I think, Bruce, the biggest challenge in all of that information that you just shared is a continued and consistent low inventory. Right. And again, even though we have more than we had this time last year, those were like historic, historic lows. So they're not that low, but they're still low. I think we're going to have to really get to the point where more home sellers are going to be comfortable bringing their homes on the market because we still have a pretty decent pent up buyer demand, even at these rates. You know, I think you're absolutely right. And I I think there's a couple other pieces here. One is when a market peaks and starts to come off the top, that's when a lot of confusion happens. We saw this with buyers thinking that they had the opportunity to control and sellers saying we still have control and interest rates start to go up and people start to get really nervous about what's happening. And I think now we all realize we're not going back to 3% anytime soon, right? And people are starting to get used to that idea. The second thing is, is that really when we look at these mortgage application data, it really hit a low back on November 9th. And we've started to see positive growth in mortgage applications since that time. And by the way, the mortgage application data really is representative of business 30 to 90 days out. So we should start to see existing home sales show better data in the coming days. 
This week is actually going to be an interesting week for economic data, bonds, and housing data. The big move for rates should be the Consumer Price Index report this week. Everything I'm reading is that the CPI is hotter than expected. So we could see bonds act negatively to that report. Also this week, we've got jobless claims, retail sales, producer price index inflation, and then, of course, the Home Builders Confidence Survey housing starts in the leading economic index. So a lot of new numbers coming out and what those numbers tell us will determine what happens going forward. If we see the CPI number come in hotter than they're expecting, don't be surprised if the Fed acts aggressively on the next price hike. Yep. Those are going to be very interesting. Yeah. And it's interesting to watch, Bruce, the consumer and their comfort level around the change is impactful. So here you have what seems to be buyers already more comfortable with the new rates we're trending at than sellers, right? They say a bird in the hand's worth two in the bush. Well, these sellers have a two and a half, three percent rate that they're sitting on in their home, and they're not yet seasoned enough to the thought that they would trade that for a six percent mortgage if they change homes, right? As much as the buyer who has no bird in the hand, they're wanting to buy and they're like, I'm fine doing it at 6%. Let's go. And Mr. Seller's like, I don't know, this 2.5% rate feels pretty good. That's part of our challenge, right? And again, based on some of those numbers that you shared that are coming out, we'll get a better idea of, of what we're predicting in interest rates going forward. In other news, housing affordability ends 2022 at a record low. At the end of the fourth quarter, the index stood at its lowest level since the National Association of Home Builders began tracking the data on a consistent basis back in 2012. In a quote from Alicia Huey, the National Association of Home Builders chairwoman, she said, rising mortgage rates, supply chain disruptions, elevated construction costs, and a lack of skilled workers and lots all contributed to a declining housing market and worsening affordability conditions going back to the second quarter of last year. But we are anticipating a better affordability climate in the months ahead, with mortgage rates already posting a modest drop since the beginning of the year and expectations that the Federal Reserve will end its latest string of interest rate hikes by the end of the first quarter, end quote. Well, Chase, we just talked about this. We'll see whether or not the Fed acts the way Alicia thinks it will. What are your thoughts about this affordability being at a record low? Well, it's a real challenge, Bruce. And there's the obvious reasons that she talked about and we've shared. Prices are way up and now rates are up. And you don't have the same amount of growth in average incomes, i.e. affordability challenge. So yeah, I think there's a lot at play there. And until we get a handle on it, it's going to continue to be tough for those home buyers, right? Those folks that are really stretched, depending on which market you're in, I think we're going to share some of that data of what percentage of homes on the market you can even afford. Some of those markets, it's very, very thin. And I think there's some things we can do to loosen some of that. As a matter of fact, Robert Dietz, who's the NAHB's chief economist, said, ultimately, the best way to reduce housing costs is for policymakers to put into place the right policies that will allow builders to produce more affordable housing by fixing broken supply chains, easing excessive regulations, and ensuring sufficient liquidity in the housing market, end quote. That's a little bit different than some of the other things we've heard. Hey, we're going to regulate these things versus we're going to deregulate and create incentives for those that can actually impact inventory to go out there and and do so. And again, both might be right, 
and that's okay. But at the end of the day, if we can't fix this affordability issue, we have a whole bunch of would-be homeowners that are continuing to be, you know, in essence, locked out of the opportunity for quite some time. Yeah. In fact, in the fourth quarter, just 38.1% of new and existing homes sold were affordable to families earning the U.S. median income of 90000 Now, that's the national numbers. If we take a look at really what we're experiencing in the Northwest, for example, the top three most affordable cities in the Northwest are Fairbanks, Alaska, where 63.5% of homes are within the means of the median family income of 97,800. At number two came in Anchorage, Alaska, where 59.6% of homes are within their median income of 116,300. And then number three was Pocatello, Idaho. 44.7% of homes are within the means of the median family income of 73,000. These numbers, these were the top three markets in the Western region which covers a lot of real estate, right, from Montana and Utah, Nevada, Arizona, California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Alaska. So the fact that we actually have three of those markets, which are still affordable, that's good news for our realtors in those markets. The least affordable cities in the Northwest, however, coming in at number one is Bend, Oregon, where actually only 11.2% of the homes are affordable for those families earning the median income of 97700 At number two was Boise, Idaho, where only 13.6% of homes are within the means of the median family income, which in Boise, the median is 87.5. And number three is Bremerton, Silverdale, Port Orchard, out there on the Kitsap Peninsula in Washington, where only 15% of homes are within the means of the median family income of 102500 These are interesting times, Chase. We've got markets where it still is somewhat affordable, and we've got markets where it's really unaffordable, right? I mean, I'm in Bend, Oregon, where we've got only 11.2% of homes uh, within the means of the average income. That illustrates the point you always make, Bruce, is that real estate is still a really local business. And so as a professional, you need to understand what affordability looks like in your town and, more importantly, how you can give good guidance to those that are experiencing that in your local market. And I think it also continues to impact where people decide to live and how they decide to work, right? We just went through a pandemic where people said, oh my gosh, some of us can work completely remotely, make the same income, and yet maybe move to a marketplace or a town where our dollar goes a little farther or there's more homes available for our price point. And we've seen kind of that migration, if you will, in and out of these towns because of some of those factors. So it's going to be interesting to continue to watch that as we deal with this affordability challenge more prevalently in some markets rather than others. Anecdotally, and we're not seeing people talk about it as much, but what we're experiencing in Bend, for example, is the million, two million, three million dollar homes are still selling for cash. And what's happening is it's investors pulling their money out of the stock market and putting it into real estate. So that impacts affordability as well, right? Because these people aren't buying their primary residence when they do that. They're buying a second home or a third or fourth home. And that, again, continues to put downward pressure on inventory. Chase, I think this is interesting, right? The gentleman who was one of the big short investors back in the last recession says iBuyers could be obsolete by 2025. In his latest interview with Bloomberg, former Goldman Sachs investor Don Mullen talked about why 
iBuyers won't survive much longer, calling them the forced sellers of today's market. Do you have any opinions around that? I think they're going to have a tough road, Bruce. I don't know that I'm bold enough to predict that they're going to be extinct. I really doubt that. There's always going to be a small percentage of the market, at least, that are happy to pay a premium and to sell their house for cash, right? We've been doing that, by the way, in the industry, even as professionals, for probably 100 years. But these iBuyers kind of made it sexy and did it at a scale that was newsworthy, right? The challenge is they did it during one of the biggest run-ups in appreciation in history. So it seemed easy to buy low and sell high when things are going up 20, 30, 40% a year for a number of years in a row. As we move into a market where that looks really different, that model in and of itself is a real challenge. And when you talk about the forced seller being these big companies with a whole bunch of inventory that they're sitting on worth billions of dollars that at some point they will have to unload the market doesn't turn around. They might have to unload those at a pretty deep discount. Whereas initially the resale seller doesn't have to do that, right? Because they can stay in the home and it's not costing them like inventory sitting on the shelf like these iBuyers. And so I think some of the concern is at what discount will they need to be unloading those based on the market? And if they'll make a move to start charging more fees to make up some of the difference in their margins. That could be additional pressure for their business model and the number of homes and deals that they're even able to do going forward. We've watched this and you know, you and I have reported on this over the last couple of years. When you realize the dominoes started to fall when Zillow offers closed down, what did they lose? Nearly a billion dollars. Following year, Redfin now and RealShore closed their doors as rising interest rates and waning consumer activity made it an unattractive model. And you look at basically the final two men standing is open door and offer pad. And by the way, they're challenged with profitability and their falling stock value. And the significance of their falling stock value is it makes it difficult for them to actually raise cheap capital to be able to continue to do this. So if they're losing money on every sale, wasn't there a saying that you say, oh, you know, I'm only losing 20 cents on these. I need to sell more of them. No, that doesn't work, right. right? I mean, literally, right? <laughs> it doesn't work. You've got to make money. The basis of Mullen's prediction comes from his experiences during the Great Recession when millions of homeowners were forced to quickly sell their homes in the face of foreclosure. And those homeowners, he said, created the repricing structure that saw home values and prices plummet for roughly four years before starting to recover. There was a great level of uncertainty about buying because people were concerned about unemployment, which was much higher, he said. So back in the Great Recession, really the forced seller was the average homeowner who lost their job and likely had a subprime mortgage. Now, this time, though, as you mentioned, it's really the iBuyers who are holding thousands of houses that they purchased at, at too high a price and those homes are worth less money now. Like you said, at what discount are they going to have to offer those in order to unload them off their books? And oh, by the way, when they do that, what's going to be the impact to that local market where regular sellers who now want to sell their houses are finding themselves competing with lower priced inventory? Yep. You can anticipate more than likely if that were to happen, Bruce, particularly depending on the speed at which they might unload them the level of impact that might have in a local market. I think you'll see it balance out. If you've got a portion of inventory coming on market for 20 to 30 cents off on the dollar, 
and you've got a portion of inventory, i.e. resell homeowners coming on the market at three to five percent lower per dollar, for example, you're going to have kind of a blended impact to the average price point in those areas. A lot of folks are predicting that that's what we're likely to see over the next 12 to 18 months is single digit potentially decrease in the average price points. But again, we'll see, Bruce. Those are all projections and we know how accurate those can be. So we'll continue to monitor it because this is the news that you need to know. Don't miss this Friday's Northern Lights episode where we'll interview Dave Nelson with Keller Williams Realty East Idaho in Idaho Falls. Thanks again for tuning in with us on The Real Look. This podcast is produced by Marissa Frost. Visit kwnwr.com to access the show notes from today's episode. Head over to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast to subscribe to The Real Look. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with a breakdown of all things real estate.